she saw him leave that morning, but he didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't show up that night. Nobody heard from him. The teen's body was found in a rolled up gym mat in a high school in 2013. His death ruled accidental. Say my name and remember what you've done. Your hurricane has blackened out the sun. You can't continue to kill unarmed black people and get away with it. But if Kendrick did die of an accident, how, with all that distrust, how could you even ever show that? But then on the flip side, is they didn't treat it like it, it could have been a homicide. Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk announced officials were reopening the investigation. Only angle is to find justice for my son. You are currently listening to season three of Ashes to Ash TV, the investigation of Kendrick Johnson. Episode four, positional asphyxia. All right, we finally made it to Florida. That was a long drive. Right, and we still have three hours out of us. Why does Florida have to be the longest state on the planet? <laughs> okay, obviously it's not. I know someone's gonna write in on the comments. Florida's not the longest state. <laughs> it takes a while to drive through, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. Yes. We've got about three more hours, but tomorrow we get to interview Dr. Anderson, which I'm so excited about. Me too. This is probably going to be one of my favorite interviews interviews that we've done so far. Yeah, I'm very, I feel like we're really going to get some unbelievable insight into what he saw during his the two autopsies. And what's even crazier is he had, was part of exhuming the body. Did you ever expect you'd have to exhume his body? No, I didn't expect to have to bury his body. In June, Kendrick's body was sent to Florida. The Johnsons hired Dr. Bill Anderson to conduct an independent second autopsy. And so I'm really curious what he has to say. And what's interesting, and it's not titled as Kendrick Johnson, but there's a book under a gentleman named Lyons that basically talks about the autopsies. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, but it's not, nowhere is Kendrick Johnson's name mentioned. So I wonder why that's being left out. So I just want to explain really quick what we're talking about in regards to this book, because this can get a little bit confusing. The book is called The Case Files of Dr. Arthur Lyons, Medical Examiner. And so even the title's a little bit odd because it's actually written by Dr. William Anderson, who was the forensics pathologist that worked on Kendrick Johnson's second and third autopsies after Kendrick was exhumed. This book is a compilation of medical examiner's files about different cases. Kendrick's happens to be the second case in the book. Now, all the names are changed in the book, and I'm assuming that Dr. Anderson did this to protect himself from maybe a lawsuit, or maybe he wasn't supposed to be talking about this case yet. I'm not really sure what the reasoning is was for changing the names, but if you read the story, it is the story, and it goes into great detail about the findings, why the original medical examiner's findings were incorrect, and what transpired in total between Dr. William Anderson and the Valdosta authorities and kind of his take on that. So it's an incredible read. It's only a dollar, it's on Amazon. You can get it in a digital download and you can read it right there. If you're interested in this case, I would definitely take a hard look at that. There is some incredible information in that book. And obviously I'm not working with Dr. Anderson to try to sell this. Um, he was very vague about it to begin with, but once I got my hands on it and read it, I just think for a dollar, 
it's definitely worth reading because I think it's extremely eye-opening. So if you're kind of on the fence, like I have been through a lot of this, whether this was accident or murder, I think this will help clarify a lot of things like it did for me. I wonder if it's not okay to write about it or what? So I read the whole book so I could really get myself grounded and ask him appropriate questions since this obviously isn't my typical field. So I thought it really helped to do that reading so that I understood what we're walking into a little bit more. When we arrived to interview Anderson, we set up the office with our equipment. Then we sit down with William Anderson, who performed KJ's second and third autopsies. Thanks for coming out today. No problem. Well, I'm a forensic pathologist, and pathologists deal with uh, making tissue diagnosis, autopsies, biopsies, and so forth. And forensic pathologists deal with the legal system, what we know as, as pathologists and interfacing with the legal system most usually cause, uh, determining cause and manner and mechanism of death and injury. And how long have you been doing this and why did you get into it originally? Well, I've been doing it since about 1976 and I was interested in pathology because it's basically a scientific approach mm -hmm. to medicine and I had always liked basically science, basic science, biology and so forth. So. And I preferred that to clinical medicine, although the laboratory part of pathology deals with clinical medicine all the time. And of course, biopsies deal with patient diagnosis all the time, too. And I do both now. I am a consultant on cases, and I also run a laboratory for biopsies. Do most people who pass away have an autopsy done? Or what's the conditions? No, the vast on? majority do not. What, what usually constitutes someone having an autopsy done? Well, there are legal situations in a coroner medical examiner system. If a death is sudden, unusual, traumatic, unex unexpected, suspicious, the medical examiner may get involved in doing the autopsy. Now the medical examiners are forensic pathologists in general. Coroners uh, in many states simply have to be 18 years of age and never convicted of a felony. When I first started doing this line of work, more investigating cases, I was shocked because I assumed a coroner was like uh, the equivalent of a doctor or something similar or had some sort of similar training. And one of the first ones we met with had been a dentist. And I was like, oh, how did you become a coroner from that? And then well, I learned. When I was practicing in Georgia, our county coroner was a gas station attendant. That's wild. And what kind of power do, do they, I mean, do they have the power to kind of say the cause of death? Yeah, they do. The coroners determine the cause and manner of death. Manner, more important, whether it's a homicide or an accident or a suicide or natural death. And obviously, if you have people who are not trained making those calls, yeah. then essentially you're going to basically garbage in, garbage out. Oh, absolutely. What is the coroner then, how do they even determine that? They just take the information given to them by law enforcement and by the medical examiner and then make a call, or sometimes they're just making a call on their Well, own? many times the medical examiner in some states doesn't get involved unless uh, the coroner essentially asks them to do an autopsy. Mm -hmm. And the coroner will make the ultimate decision, though. Now, in some states, uh, they have a close working relationship and they're very professional, but some states are not, and sometimes the, uh, you know, basically, yeah, take the information law enforcement gives them, and then come up with a, quote, independent diagnosis. Well, if you're taking information from them, it's hard to come up with an independent yeah. if you haven't investigated it yourself, right? So in some situations, you have the 
uh, in the medical examiner system. You have the medical examiners have a, an investigative group that go out and investigate too, but many times uh, those investigators, and I know this from personal experience, just simply take what the cops tell them. That's what I think is kind of scary about it is that if you have someone untrained doing that and they're being fed information, why wouldn't you just go with that information? I mean, that seems like a really dangerous kind of way to set up that system. Well, it is. And also there is a certain reluctance in many systems to basically cross swords with the law enforcement if they, you know, say this isn't true and so forth. And particularly in many states, a law enforcement personnel have significant input into the hiring and firing of medical examiners. And it's certainly true in Florida where you have a group pointed by the commission uh, in a county to decide who the medical examiner is going to be. And generally it's tilted quite a bit toward all the law enforcement people and the state attorney. And you may have a public one public defender and one funeral director and one lay person, but the rest of them are all law enforcement. So they have obviously have sway over the individual economically, if you will, that's never a good situation. That's interesting that you bring that up because in a lot of the cases, we have a lot of people who come talk to us who are afraid of losing their jobs, so they just won't go on the record, but they'll give us, they sometimes give us the reports or they'll give us stuff, but they're very much like, you will ruin my life if you say my name. And I think that's really sad that it's the system is set up around people losing their livelihood. You know, I could see why a lot of people, you know, they didn't cause it, they didn't do it, so why did they want to put their neck on the line to potentially lose their income? And I feel like that's a huge problem in this kind of dynamic here. Well, it is a huge problem, and it, uh, it comes to the front uh, in a lot of these cases, including the one we're talking about. Have you seen a lot of instances where you've taken on uh, an autopsy after the original findings have been put out by the medical examiner from that community specifically, where you feel like that influence tying together of law enforcement and the coroner and the medical examiner, that that has influenced it in the wrong way and created results that aren't accurate? You mean how many times in the last month? Or, <laughs> or that often? <laughs> So another expert I'd really wanted to sit down with was Mark Patrick George, and he's a representative from the Mary Turner Project. As I had originally started researching this case in Valdosta, I had found a lot of interesting things regarding racism, of police brutality on cases involving race, and then also lynchings. And the lynching of Mary Turner was one of the most prevalent things that kept coming up while I was doing my research. The story really made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. First of all, it was a woman being lynched and I hadn't heard about that a lot. So I wanted to kind of understand what had happened there. As I started researching this, one of the first pieces of information I found online was that they were unable to keep her memorial up because people kept vandalizing it. And this had been going on for quite a while to the point where they finally had to take the memorial down 100% and try to find a new town to put it in. And I thought that that was really startling, that they were unable to keep a memorial up that was for a woman who had been lynched 100 years ago because it was damaged so often. And the damage consisted of vehicles driving into it and bullet holes. So that was really kind of a lot for me to stomach that they couldn't even keep this memorial up. So I quickly just want to read this post that I had found in regards to the fact that they couldn't keep the memorial up. Dear members of the press, the Mary Turner Project wanted to reach out and let you know that the Mary Turner lynching historical marker has again been seriously vandalized. This time to the point that the metal marker was actually severely cracked. 
It appears that it had been repeatedly struck on the lower left-hand corner multiple times by some kind of on or off-road vehicle. It has also been shot a few more times since the last act of vandalism last year. There are now at least 27 bullet holes impacts in the marker. Attached to this message, you will find photos of the most recent damage. As you'll see in the attached photos, the marker is severely fractured on both sides of the collar that secures it to the post. Given that another small blow or two would have completely broken the marker off of the post, the staff of the Georgia Historical Society and the Mary Turner Project determined that we needed to remove it from the site before the marker plate was completely broken off from the post and potentially lost. With that decision in mind, members of the Mary Turner Project removed the marker from the site location last Thursday and will store it until reinstallment plans are developed with the Georgia Historical Society and other sponsors of the marker. So I think that kind of explains a lot about what had been happening with the marker, but I also think it's really interesting that you cannot keep a marker up in Valdosta like that, that is in remembrance of somebody who went through a horrible act of violence uh, and who's also black. So I think that that is really telling and it was really kind of disturbing when I read that. So I really wanted to talk to Mark Patrick George to understand a little more about what happened to Mary Turner and what impacts that might have on today in Valdosta and the Kendrick Johnson case. Hi, Ebert's the Mary Turner Project. Nobody can take your call right now, but if you would please leave us a detailed message and we will return your call as soon as we can. Thanks and have a great day. Hey Mark, this is Ash Patino. I had been in contact with you about possibly doing an interview with you or someone from the project uh, about the series we're doing on Valdosta and Kendrick Johnson and then the history of the African-American community into today. And we have the dates we're gonna be back in town. So I was hoping that we could schedule an interview with you on one of those days. Uh, sure, my name's uh, Mark Patrick George. I am the coordinator of something called the Mary Turner Project, which is kind of a grassroots community-based racial justice organization. We do a lot of what I call applied social research around any kind of racial inequality. And the point of doing that research is to engage the community or the public or institutions, uh, both to kind of educate, but also kind of cause social change. So we do uh, historical research on kind of the racial atrocities in this part of the world, whether it's slavery, lynching, uh, debt peonage. We provide free services for the descendants of lynching victims. So if families are wanting research done, we do that. Plus we do kind of local activism when called upon to do so. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Yeah, that's even just saying debt peonage. I did not, I'm 41 years old. I had never heard that until I came down here. Most folks don't know that there was, you know, a, a, almost in many ways more violent form of slavery that took effect after the Civil War that lasted until the middle of the Second World War. There are people still alive today who have mm. experienced some of that stuff or their direct descendants. And I think that that's what people forget is it is, sure, it seems a long time ago. You know, I was born in 79, so seems forever ago, but it's not. Like those, there are people still here. And I think that, you know, what we were talking about before the cameras were turned on, like that doesn't bleed out. It takes generations to get that to bleed out that fear. Just cause that one generation isn't here anymore doesn't mean it's gone. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting even about you guys through all the social justice work by calling it the Mary Turner Project. What made you want to 
use her name specifically. Yeah, we talked to the family about it a lot. I mean, she was killed for objecting to the lynching of her husband. She had children at the time. She made sure they were safe before she threatened to swear out warrants against the people that had killed her husband. So we kind of speculate that she knew what the consequences of that might be. And I think about this all the time, uh, especially given the last four years, the potential for violence. You know, you, there's consequences for doing this kind of stuff, whether it's economic or your reputation or whatever else. But if you, you know a little bit about history, there have been these courageous men and women and people who stood up in the most dangerous of times for what was right. And in many ways, we see her as that person. We also, you know, there's just been thousands of people disappeared in the Deep South by lynch mobs, which were basically death squads. And we feel like they should not only be remembered, but acknowledged. And the act of doing that means something. So we live in this kind of traumatized place and evoking her name in our work. So before we started in 2007, nobody knew who she was. Since then, her name is in U.S. testimony on race relations. She's been mentioned and the story's been told on CNN and the Washington Post, 127 AP newspapers across the country. And there's this way that I think that's a testament to who she was and was about in some small way. So that memory is very much alive in the work we do today because of her name. I was talking to this historian yesterday. We're a nation that hasn't had any truth and reconciliation process, you know. continue our conversation with Dr. Anderson. Generally speaking, uh, over a year, I probably get about five or six of those at least a year where there's been a, a second autopsy. And I'm in private practice now, so I'm not hired by the county or anything. So those constraints are not there. But the medical examiner, even when confronted with hard data, as was the case in Kendrick Johnson, mm -hmm. even con when confronted with hard data, are very reluctant to accept that or even look at your data when you, you know, bring it forward to them. Yeah, that's interesting because Sheriff Polk, when we talked about, we had asked about you, we said, you know, why, why were these two other autopsies so different than the initial one? And he said, well, I guess if you pay a guy to do an autopsy, they're going to give you the results you want. And I thought, how offensive was that with your Well, that's, that's always a, a, good, a good way to deflect it. But the fact of the matter is, that the uh, medical examiners in the state are paid for their jobs too and so forth. It wasn't like we didn't document what we found. If they, all they had to do to, to assure themselves that that wasn't true was just look at the pictures and we offered to send them the pictures and nobody wanted to look at the pictures of Kendrick Johnson. Yeah, that's surprising because I would have thought they would have wanted to take your information and sure, get their own medical examiner, certainly all in a room and all talk through it to see if everyone can come to the same conclusion. But that just doesn't even seem to happen at all, or am I incorrect? It doesn't happen very often. Well, then the medical examiners, for instance, in the Kendrick Johnson case, where they did not dissect the area that we found the, the injury, uh, you know, they're, they don't want to basically admit that they didn't 
you know, look at that area, and sometimes it's not incompetence, but you have, sometimes it takes a couple tries to get everything right in autopsy, because you might not think of the first, at first, but then you go back and look at things that didn't fit correctly, like the lung weights, for instance, in this case. Uh, then you go back and look at it, and uh, as I said, sometimes you have to do two autopsies to get it right. But that doesn't mean the first person was wrong, but all you got to do is but integrate that together with the findings of the second. But uh, in general, in my experience, with multiple situations, like there's multiple medical examiners, multiple doctors involved, that uh, they don't want to do that. They don't want to go back and even look at it. And I was really sort of taken aback a, a little bit by the the reluctance of the medical examiner in Georgia to even look at our autopsy photos, you know, at least look at them and say, no, I don't agree with it, but to not even look at them in the first place, you know, it's sort of, it's difficult to comprehend why you would do that. Yeah, that seems very cavalier to me. I can't imagine just assuming I was right about something and not willing to at least look. I might still be right, but at least look at it objectively. Well, even if you're going to deny that our findings mean anything, at least look at them before you deny it. <laughs> at least at least pretend. It's good to cover yourself. Yeah, at least to look at it before you, right. before you automatically deny it. Yeah. I just want to break into the episode really quick and remind everybody to subscribe. You can subscribe right on the website, www.ashes2ashtv.com, and that's spelled A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T-V.com. And if you can subscribe, that money just goes right back into helping us solve these cases. You also get some perks. You get discounts on merchandise. You get to see episodes early. You get to see behind the scenes and uncut footage. And you get to be part of our private Facebook subscriber group. And that's kind of nice because you can ask questions directly to me and I'll be able to answer them. And last but not least, you get to see these episodes without commercial breaks. So that's always a nice bonus. So if you can subscribe, please do. It helps us out a lot. If not, I just ask that you keep watching. The show is always free because that's how we get in tips and solve these cases. So thanks for watching and back to the episode. We return to Mark Patrick George's conversation. There is some local support, but we're in the deep south. And there's also a contingency of people that want to keep things the way they are and they want to keep the past buried and they want to pretend it didn't happen. We also know many of the lynch mob members, their descendants are alive and well here. Both of those things are going on at the same time. Even since we've been down here, someone had asked us who we were interviewing, and we had mentioned that we were interviewing. So we just said someone with the Mary Turner Project because we didn't know if they would know who you were. So the person actually said, well, they just can't leave anything in the past. And <laughs> I have a hard time reacting to that stuff on camera, but I was kind of like, I think it should be talked about. But. Well, we're selective about the past, right? So when she was killed, my grandmother was 18. Mm -hmm. You know, I have an uncle who's alive today that was alive when lynchings were happening. He's 92. He's told me stories about him. So we're not talking about that long ago. And at the same time, it's, it's interesting what Americans do with the past, right? We don't have a problem with Fourth of July. We don't have a problem with Memorial Day. We don't have a problem with a variety of things in the past, right? Specifically, if they make us feel exceptional and good. When it comes to being grown-ups and facing how this country was founded and the things that have been done in the name of quote-unquote freedom, mm -hmm. um, we seem to be kind of cowardly. So, <clears throat> and I think that's unhealthy. Y you know, we know if any individual experiences significant trauma, particularly when they're young, uh, unless that trauma is 
faced and explored, it will direct their lives in ways they don't understand. Absolutely. And I would argue that the same thing is the case with communities and societies as well. So it's interesting. And if the past didn't matter, let's take that damn statue off the courthouse lawn. And <laughs> yeah. But all of a sudden, the past all of a sudden matters again when you start trying to change some things. Back with Dr. Anderson, I ask, how did you originally even get involved in the Kendrick Johnson case? Well, I was contacted by Shereen King, who was the lawyer for the family. Mm -hmm. And they were quite concerned that this didn't make any sense, that all somebody had to do, if their, if their shoe had fallen down in the middle of the gym mat, all you had to do was turn the gym mat over on its side. I mean, standing there to turn it over. And it's sort of like, it's, it's almost assuming that Kendrick was too dumb to do that, you know, would do that, and you know, but nobody's going to do that. And then, of course, the positional asphyxia thing. And I, I said, well, send me the autopsy that the state had done. I look at the lungs, and they're normal, no edema, nothing. And I said, well, to make a diagnosis of positional asphyxia, it means that the lungs, because an individual has progressively unable to breathe properly, the diaphragmatic muscles get tired, the lungs fill up with fluid, and normally you have eight or 900 grams lungs full with fluid for, for, to make the diagnosis of positional asphyxia. Mm -hmm. And Kendrick's had no fluid in it, and they were normal weight. Well, just by definition, you can't diagnose positional asphyxia if you don't have the major component of the diagnosis. It's like calling a heart attack and say, well, the heart is normal, but we think he had a heart attack. You know, to make the diagnosis, you have to have the primary factors involved in making that diagnosis. And number one in positional asphyxia is the presence of pulmonary edema, heavy lungs, fluid in the lungs. And that wasn't there. So immediately that caused some, I was a little bit skeptical about whether or not this, first of all, it didn't make any sense that he would climb into the gym mat, and second of all, when you found that there was no evidence of positional asphyxia, that I said, well, we need to basically exhume the body and look and see what the... Yeah. And does that happen with any positional asphyxia case where the where fluid goes into the lungs or only if someone's inverted during... No, any positional asphyxia, because okay. what it is is that you can't breathe properly, so your oxygen level goes down, your heart begins to fail because it's not getting enough oxygen over a period of sometimes minutes, sometimes uh, an hour or two, sometimes, if you know, if you in a position where you can't breathe, you can breathe somewhat, but not completely, and you can't get out of that position, then eventually you'll, you'll die of the positional asphyxia when the lungs fill up of time fluid. So you wouldn't have somebody dead with no pulmonary edema and call it positional asphyxia, you'd have to call it something else. Absolutely. And when the original medical examiner had looked at his body and the lungs, they basically had stated that the lungs were of normal weight? Well, yeah, well, they weigh them. There was no evidence that the lungs were at all heavy as far as fluid and so forth. So. And did they ever come up with an explanation for why in this case of positional asphyxia that might have not, the, that the, why the lungs might not have had that? Did they ever explain that to you or no? No, well actually we offered to send them all our information, the photos and findings and so forth, and they basically, the state medical examiners, indicated that they were not interested in looking at any of that at all. They didn't even want to see the pictures. 
They didn't want to see our findings. Ashes to Ash is created by Ash Patino, associate producer Kate Giordano, production manager and co-host Bree Blankenfeld, title music Bones, performed by Eight Graves. Subscribe on the website to receive commercial-free content, early access to episodes, uncut interviews, and discounted merchandise. Just go to ashestoashtv.com, www.ashestoashtv.com. If you have a tip or information, please email us at ashland57 at gmail.com, A-S-H-L-A-N-D-5-7 at gmail.com. We can keep you anonymous. If you know of a legal activity involving this case, please reach out to your local law enforcement. To follow us on Facebook, please go to Ashes to Ash True Crime and on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Ashes to Ash TV.